we've had this sort of virtuous three-way cycle going. And that really bears fruit because we have a much clearer perspective on the use cases that our customers want. And when time ripens to put one of these innovations into practice, we have found that we're pretty well prepared to make that happen quickly. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Jeff Gelhar, Vice President of Technology at Qualcomm. Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be back again. I am looking forward to digging into our conversation. It's always a lively one. We were talking a little bit about what was going on in your world in our pre-call. And one of the points that really jumped out at me that we'll be exploring in the conversation today is kind of this divergence that's happening in the industry between model complexity increasing and device power in some cases, decreasing in the case of like IoT devices. But before we do that, it's been a while since you've been on. I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and role with our audience. Sure. Thank you very much again for having me. Look, so I'm VP Technology. I had Qualcomm's AI software portfolio. And so we'll, of course, talk about the Qualcomm AI stack and some of the challenges you and I have, have talked about. But my role really is to provide a platform of software solutions on top of our AI hardware that spans Qualcomm Silicon that enables us to address you know market segments from cloud all the way to IoT, including you know, automotive, mobile, and so on. So that's really what my team is focused on doing. Just for context, talk a little bit about the relationship between your focus and that of the Qualcomm AI research. Uh, as you know, I, I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to a lot of your colleagues and research about their latest projects and papers at conferences. How does that work relate to what you do? Yeah, great. Thank you. Great question. So Jalay, who heads that research team, and I have been longtime colleagues. And really the way to think about it is that there's sort of three prongs for success for AI at Qualcomm. One is hardware. Of course, we're a silicon first company in a lot of ways. Software, which we just talked about. And then the research, which really is drives our innovation. And so my job is to work with Qualcomm Research, to work with the hardware teams to kind of bring a lot of those innovations forward, either in the form of hardware software co-design, where we're maybe changing hardware and software together to address a new challenge, a new innovation in AI, say transformers and this kind of thing that's a new, relatively newer technology. Or we're bringing techniques for optimizing networks. They have a big focus on power optimization and optimality, bringing those techniques into the software stack so that practitioners, developers, and practitioners in general can take advantage of those techniques in a way which doesn't require them to read a paper or write their own code or whatever. That, that's part of my job is to kind of bring that in a mass market kind of way to our end users. One of the things that's surprised me recently in having the benefit of conversations with the folks on the research side and the folks on the enterprise side, the product side, is how quickly things can move from one to the next. I'm thinking in particular of a conversation that I had about on the research side, using neural nets to kind of tune radio parameters. That was with Joseph Soriaga. Yeah. And then it seemed like just a couple of months later, I was speaking with folks about that being kind of in the wild or starting to, to make its way into the hardware. Any perspective that you can share on that? Is, has that 
kind of velocity shifted over the years that you've been at Qualcomm or are there things that are impacting it or changing it? Yeah, so I think it's an area, thank you for the compliment because sometimes we feel like we don't move fast enough. <laughs> I think that it's an area we have focused on really kind of tightening, trying to tighten the innovation cycle from research to product. And I think it's just pleasant product of us focusing on it and us really trying to be more strategic about this hardware software co-design, which is kind of foundational to bringing these innovations quickly. We've had this sort of virtuous three-way cycle going for a couple of, well, we're probably into our seventh or eighth generation product now. And that really bears fruit because we have a much clearer perspective on the use cases that our customers want and driven by the innovation and research. And then when time ripens to put one of these innovations into practice, we have found that we're pretty well prepared to make that happen quickly, right? So it's it's that whole sort of internal ecosystem we've developed. And we have focused deliberately on trying to increase the, pay, the cadence by which we can take research and bring it to the marketplace. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about this idea that I mentioned earlier, kind of increasing model complexity and kind of decreasing device power. I guess some devices in any particular class of devices, they're getting more powerful, but right. the diversity of the types of devices that you're trying to, to run machine learning models on is increasing, including lower power devices. Can you right. just talk a little bit about what you're seeing out in the ecosystem? Sure. Yeah. So I think traditionally, if you kind of rewind a little bit, a lot of focus on CNNs. Mm -hmm. And of course, in their heyday, CNNs were very demanding workloads, right, for the hardware and the software that we had at the time. And it's not like that demand has gone away. But as you know, the industry's moved towards higher complexity CNNs, higher resolution inputs, transformers, which are you know, very powerful, but are higher complexity in a lot of ways than CNNs. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've gone from delivering AI into mobile devices, which is kind of where Qualcomm, you know, has its heart and soul into IoT devices, which are obviously really constrained. So think about a home robot, think about a ring doorbell, this kind of thing. And markets like XR are particularly challenging because you have high complexity networks involving hand tracking or gestures or super resolving the displays and stuff, right? Foveated views, that kind of thing. And that's a device you want it to be compact. You want it to sit on your head. You can't, you know, make your face or head too hot. Yeah. So there's power constraints, right? So there's a lot of concurrency going on, which drives complexity and their battery limits, right? And thermal limits. And so at the margins of these let's call them simpler devices, we find an increasing challenge to take these complicated and concurrent workloads and pack them into these devices. And at the other extreme, you can think about an automobile as having similar characteristics, tons of cameras, tons of concurrent workloads. You think relatively a lot more power, but still there, thermal and power is a consideration. Mm -hmm. And of course, other factors like safety, right? Did you have to also factor into your workload? So kind of a explosion of diversity where we're trying to build a common we'll talk about this i hope a common architecture that lets the practitioners move workloads from one to the other so you think xr but in cabin camera in an automobile that's tracking your eyes and making sure you're not texting when you're supposed to be looking out the windshield is not in some way so dissimilar from a sort of outside in xr workload right so you see kind of analogies across these markets for different kinds of applications. So we want to build a common kind of architecture that lets us do that. 
And is the from the developer perspective, is the common architecture in place because you see the same types of applications cross one device to the next or one use case like XR to audio, or is it not so much the same applications, but you want the developer to be able to reuse their skills in a different environment? It's a little bit of both. So we can talk about it. We recently announced the Qualcomm AI stack. At the kind of heart of that, kind of the center of it is this Qualcomm AI Engine Direct layer, which provides a API abstraction that spans across all of our chips from our cloud product all the way to our IoT products. And like I said, all the sort of products in the middle. And that is directly aimed at developers, practitioners. And I use that word broadly because that kind of handset OEM, it could mean an application developer and so on. And that is the contract really that we're building between the runtimes and the training frameworks to get onto Qualcomm Silicon. So we're gonna provide sort of out of the box as part of that, our own Snapdragon Neural Processing SDK, which is our traditional runtime that we provide on our Silicon. It's built on this common block. We're of course providing like TensorFlow Lite delegate plugins, we're working with Microsoft on Onyx runtime plugins. And that API will be open to anybody who wants to build sort of a direct to Qualcomm Silicon, you know, metal, runtime of their own, whether their runtime is just an application or whatever. Now, we do also see application providers that want to provide basically the same application on like compute devices. So think Windows on Snapdragon, think ARM-powered Windows devices, and be able to move that, let's say, to a handset device, okay? Mm -hmm. And they want to be able to have basically the same application. And so we're providing the same silicon acceleration, and now we're providing the same software platform, and they can very easily move their application, if you will, from cloud or from device to device onto the device. And we've demonstrated that with one of the with one of our leading partners and shown how the same application could be sort of cloud powered or device powered. And then you can split the workload using the same, you know, abstraction. Can you kind of walk us through, you know, as you're talking to these developers, what are kind of the real world challenges that they run into when they're trying to take advantage of neural networks on device? I mean, we talk about some of them, you know, power and yeah. the kind of compute constraints of those devices, but kind of take us to the next level of detail. Like what, yeah. what are the pain points that the developers run into? Yeah, I think. One of the key ones is when we think about network optimality, you know, there's a lot of dimensions to it. There's the size of the network. It can take storage. It can take time to download it, this kind of thing. Of course, size is directly relevant, let's say, to the number of parameters, the number of weights, and so on. Power, like you mentioned, right? You know, other factors, performance, total performance can be a factor of model size, right? Of course. Mm -hmm. So all these factors are really, let's put them in a bucket of like achieving network optimality. And we have demonstrated, in fact, we just finished a project with one of our biggest customers where we were able to demonstrate that even their most advanced use cases can be quantized. We can quantize the networks to 8 bits or 16 bits, whereas their internal kind of research had shown that they needed like floating point operations in order to achieve accuracy that they were targeting. Mm -hmm. And through our advanced techniques, which are all part of the software offering that we're developing, we were able to work with them and show them, hey, look, you can get to 8-bit on some of these networks. You can get to 16-bit fixed point on some of these networks. We have a lot of research in 4-bit as well. The result of that is tremendous 
improvements in power performance, the ability to run things concurrently because they can run faster. These are all kind of, I think the most, the biggest pain points, because what's happened is it used to be that CNNs were sort of over-parameterized. And so it was relatively simpler to compress them or relatively simpler to sparsify them or whatever. And as sort of complexity has gone up and the concurrency we talked about has gone up, getting them all jammed into a device and getting them to work efficiently and concurrently at whatever frame rate you need them to get it becomes harder and harder. And so this bridge, if you will, from ML ops, like what happens, if you will, in the cloud, in the laboratory, and a data scientist invents a new network architecture or a new whatever, and they say, hey, now deploy it. The deployment part turns out to be really pretty hard. And now you have this sort of impedance mismatch between that data scientist who says, hey, I've got this perfect model and it solves the problem perfectly. Why can't you make it run on the device? That's really, I would say, one of the key pain points right now. And we're working very aggressively to address that and bringing tools that can a lot more easily take that model out of the data scientist's hands and bring it to the device in a way that does not compromise the sort of integrity, the basic design of that model. Mm -hmm. And are you, do those tools apply only to kind of custom models that ML engineer might be creating, or do they also apply to kind of the lighter weight models that someone might download off of Hugging Face or something like that? Sure, so Hugging Face is a particular example where again, we can touch on transformers. Quantizing transformers is a bit of a new art, which we have quite a bit of research on, and you will see that kind of flow into our tools. But if we take the more general part of your question, you know, these tools apply to, I'll call it run-of-the-mill you know, models, ResNets, and those kinds of things that people are maybe familiar with, yeah. as well as these custom ones, right? And so we're working very hard to make sure that if you've got a model in TensorFlow or PyTorch, whether it's a stock ResNet or you pulled it off of GitHub or whether it's a proprietary model, that you can run it through this workflow and you can get consistent results to bring that to, in our case, Qualcomm Silicon and Qualcomm software. We think that's one of the challenges. And I think it's evidenced by the fact that there are you know, new companies surfacing all the time to deal with ML ops issues. And ML ops has its own set of complexities, mm -hmm. managing the data, managing the pipeline, scaling up training. I mean, there's a lot of challenges there. We don't want to be one more challenge in the pipeline. We want to go, okay, you solve your ML ops problem or your training thing, that's fine. We don't want to be the, oh, but now it doesn't work on device. We're working really hard to make that transition as smooth as possible. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the workflow that you just mentioned? Kind of what are the steps or, or tools that you're providing that enable folks to, to do this? Yeah, so I think you've had some of my other colleagues talk about like the AI model efficiency toolkit. That's kind of at the center of this, right? Mm -hmm. So think about the workflow being like this. We, there are kind of maybe two aspects to the model efficiency toolkit. One is an aspect that pieces of it can plug directly into your training pipeline. So think quantization of our training is a good example. So this is the process where during the training cycle itself in your training loop, you are conditioning the network to understand what the effects of quantization are going to be on that particular network. So it learns the noise, if you will, that gets introduced during that quantization process. Instead of waiting until you get all the way to the deployment phase and you now realize, hey, this model isn't very resilient to quantization, right? So some models really require quantization or training. 
And we've got tools that plug into PyTorch and plug into TensorFlow, add a little bit extra to your training pipeline, and then condition the model during training to be quantization aware. Now, there's a whole category of models where you don't need that sophisticated approach. You can do what we call post-training quantization, okay? So you've trained the model in your favorite framework. We've got tools that will read that native file format. We run it through a series of post-training techniques. Again, a lot of this we have done quite a bit of innovation on and studying how do you do this in a way that preserves the integrity of the model and also reduces the precision, which reduces the size, reduces power consumption and so on, which are objectives. So you would run it through post-training quantization. This produces a representation of the model in this Qualcomm AI engine direct format. Think about it like an intermediate representation. So it's a common representation. Any graph that comes from PyTorch or TensorFlow will be quantized and then reduced into this intermediate representation. From that intermediate representation, you can then as a practitioner direct where you want that model to run. Do you want it to run on our AI hexagon accelerator? Do you want it to run on the GPU? Do you want it to run on the CPU? Once we have it in that common representation, you can then run it wherever you want. And a lot of our customers will go, oh, I want to run this one on the GPU and that one on the accelerator and so on, that one on the low power subsystem and so on. That's kind of the basic workflow. And then if your deployment is a smartphone, you can run on the AI accelerator. If your deployment is a cloud device or a heavy edge device, it's using our cloud processor, you can take the same representation and run it there. And that's a multi-core device. So you have a lot of performance you can run there. So that's where this idea of having a common representation across our silicon ties in with that sort of development workflow that a, say the data scientist might pursue. You've also been doing work in network architecture search. How does that play into this workflow? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. You know, network architecture search, again, is sort of an evolving technology, right? There was a big rush and, and Google was an early innovator and we're happy to be partnered with Google on, on our offering. Now, the way to think about it is I put it in this sort of very advanced category, right? <laughs> and, but again, it's one of the tricks when a, one of the tools that we're offering to our customers to bridge that gap from what a data scientist might want to do sort of in the laboratory, if you will, when they're designing a network and tying the design of that network to hardware-specific characteristics. So that's kind of one attribute. We're working with Google to make sure that Vertex NAS understands Snapdragon, if you will, that's the way to put it. So that the network architectures that are produced from neural architecture search are sort of inherently hardware aware. So they're inherently optimized for Snapdragon, okay? And so by tying those two things together, again, we are providing a way for the data scientists to produce a result that is sort of prepared to run in one of these, say, power-constrained environments. And we've had good success with some XR and automotive workloads where we're seeing, we're seeing NAS produce in a much quicker way than a data scientist could iterate on their own, innovative, network architectures that are tuned for Snapdragon that reduce the latency, increase the frame rate, reduce the network size, all characteristics that we're trying to achieve when we're helping like an XR customer or an automotive customer get a very demanding set of workloads onto our platforms. So it's another tool there, but I think that for the listeners, the key takeaway is this linking 
the speed at which you can search a lot of, run a lot of experiments, if you will, automatically, and linking it to hardware awareness so that the final output is preconditioned to do well on our silicon. Yeah. You talked about frame rate. Are the primary workloads that these are being used for vision workloads? Yeah. So, I mean, I think of that because that's the predominant workload. Of course, if this were like natural language processing, you know, you might say like, how fast can it parse a sentence or whatever, right? So that has to do more with like word length, right? Or query length. But typically, so many of the applications which are demanding are, we can go across the whole spectrum. So of course, in mobile, it's typically low light video, let's say, is a pretty demanding workload, super resolution. We've shown some super resolution in game. So I'm doing gaming. Mm-hmm. And I want to super resolve, you know, the action scene in the game to increase the quality and the experience. XR, so maybe two kinds of workloads nominally. The rendering part, right, in the sort of you're doing some kind of augmentation or whatever, and also things like hand gesture, right, which, again, we talk about frame rate there because you want to sample it often enough that it's a smooth experience, right, that you don't miss gestures, you don't miss motion, right? So we oftentimes use frame rate a little loosely, meaning kind of sampling interval for an experience. And likewise with the car, it's looking down the road. You don't want it to look down the road once a second. You want it to look down the road 30 times a second or 25 times a second, right? Right. Do you have a sense for when, when folks know that they need to start exploring network architecture search? Like what's the wall that they're bumping up against that well, if you're experiencing that, then maybe nah, you need to go to this advanced level. Yeah, so that's kind of a complicated surface. You know, we didn't talk <laughs> about, for example, mixed precision, right? Mm-hmm. Is another kind of technique of like, you don't have to just do stuff in one precision. You can mix different layers and different precision, and we support that. I think there's a couple drivers. The idea that you can sort of algorithmically imbue this algorithm with an awareness of the hardware is something which is hard to sort of learn at scale. And in some cases, we don't want to tell all of our customers all of our secrets, right? So there's a little bit of that going on. But it's also hard to learn a lot of the subtlety that something like a NAS system can learn on its own and can can leverage. The other thing, too, is just raw experimentation. I mean, if NAS can produce a thousand candidate models in some unit time, how long would it take a data scientist to think up the same thousand experiments, right? And so some of it's just kind of a brute force, like search the solution space in an automated way, but it's directive. It's got considerations for hardware, it's got considerations for size and so on kind of baked into it. It's a nice tool to increase the rate at which a data scientist can explore different approaches. So it sounds like Given the relative cost and complexity of using it, there's a space of high value problems where they're close enough that they think that there's a solution, but not quite far enough that they're at the solution that this is something to try. Yeah, you can think about it kind of maybe in two areas. You can think about it like if you have kind of no idea how to solve a problem, right? You have your search space is very large. Mm-hmm. This might be a way to kind of get to an idea automatically through basically rote experimentation mm-hmm. to solve your problem. The experiments we've done so far have focused more on, I've got a network, kind of to your point, I've got a network, and if I apply this technique, how much better can I get it, right? And sometimes you go, oh, I saved 15% in latency or something, right? Which can translate into power or frame rate, depending on what you're trying to, you know, what effect you want. 
And that could mean, oh, I could run one more network with the same unit time because this one's going to finish sooner. So these projects, because they have so many networks and there's so much complexity, are really sort of a puzzle-fitting experience. You can't generally a priori say, oh, this network absolutely has to run in such amount of time or use so much power because you're looking at a collection of networks that are together are solving a problem, right? Again, something people might your audience might be experienced with this is virtual reality, metaverse, XR, whatever term you want. Mm -hmm. They realize, oh, it's following my hands and it's rendering the screen. They don't really think about all the things it's doing, but if it doesn't do all those things yeah. fast enough together, you just don't have that immersive experience. Right, right. You mentioned mixed precision. Can we dig into that a little bit more? How, where is mixed precision now on kind of the adoption cycle? Is, is it being broadly used, do you think, or are folks just starting to, to explore it? So I would say that there's been a period of exploration, the, say maybe the last product cycle, where we enabled it in our products. But again, a little bit sort of to the NAS story, there weren't good tools to sort of automate it. So it was a way to address point problems. Oh, this layer is having a problem quantizing, or we need more output resolution here. So we're going to use a higher precision layer that produces higher resolution activations or something. Now we're introducing automatic mixed precision. So again, bridging that the friction points from taking a model that works great on a bench somewhere for a data scientist and getting it onto device. Sometimes again, thinking about post-training quantization techniques, this would be one of them. I'm not really retraining the model. I'm looking, I'm analyzing the model and saying, oh, look, I can see that layer 42, right? That's the universal number for everything, right? Layer 42, <laughs> that's the one that's causing the trouble. If it's in say 8-bit integer precision, let me move it to integer 16 and boom, my quantization problem goes away, right? That's the source of my accuracy. So mm -hmm. again, providing tools for practitioners to automate that so that it's more push button. That's that's the road we're on. And we'll, those features are arriving now in, in our tool chain. Got it. What are the features that you are expecting to see looking forward? So again, I think we're early in NAS, okay? I think we're still somewhat early in sort of quantization of transformers and all their variants, right? So we're seeing kind of an emergence of vision transformers, we're seeing transformers for like multimodal kinds of applications, right? And so on. We've done a bunch of research there, but I would say that that's an emerging area where we'll, we will see practitioners moving towards wanting to apply those and facing some of the same hurdles that they're facing now on sort of traditional architectures. And I would also say that, you know, there's a lot of smaller friction points in moving from the data scientists part of the ecosystem to the you know final deployed product. And so we can think about streamlining like the model conversion steps better. Int4 is a really exciting uh, in even more exotic data format. Mm -hmm. You know, we recently announced some discussions around FP8, which is another data format. So there's a lot of things coming with the continued, I would say, challenges as we started off this discussion. I don't see the challenge of increasing model complexity faced with struggles to reach optimality in various forms. Data format is a way, NAS is a way there, right? The tools we're providing, these are all roads to the same goal, which is, you know, more complexity in packages that will also get more 
capable, but there'll be limits, right? There will always face kind of a innovation challenge. So mm -hmm. I would say the tooling is really going to be directed at continuing to make that easier for practitioners and at the same time continuing in the direction of things like more NAS, lower precision and so on, right? Which will pose their own challenges going forward. Mm -hmm. And do you see the tools themselves getting easier to use or are they based on what I've seen thus far, they're pretty low level tools. Yeah. But how do those evolve? So the way they're evolving is we're not ready to sort of fully announce stuff, but you can think about, we will also be introducing a graphically oriented tool. So again, moving from the, I'll call it advanced practitioner who maybe is part data scientist and part deployment engineer, right? To where, again, we want to make this simpler and simpler and more and more mass market. And so, yes, we, we've started with command line tools and sophisticated profilers and debuggers. What you will see from Qualcomm is, I think, increasingly steady set of announcements around, oh, now we've got a profiler, visual profiler for this. Oh, now we have a way to do you know, network inspection. And so the way I think for the audience to think about it is like source code debugging, if people still write code and they remember what that's like, you want to write your code and you do not want to see it, your debugger in assembly language. Like you don't want to see what the compiler turned your code into. You want to debug your code in the context that you wrote it, that you understand it. And so the way I think about it is the same here. A data scientist designed a network and they visualize it like a set of connected nodes. They don't want any, I think, hardware or compiler company to go, oh, now you have to debug your network that you right. conceptualize as a graph in assembly language. And so we're going to do the same sort of thing. We're going to provide debuggers that put that performance and data that the developer needs to understand how their network is performing on our silicon in the context of the original graph as it arrived at the start of that pipeline I described, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really the link we're trying to build is you think as a data scientist about your network in TensorFlow, and we want to show it to you on the device. Sure, with device-specific performance metrics and accuracy metrics, but in the context of this graph, the way you designed it, not in some low-level kind of assembly language, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what you'll see is more and more visually-oriented tools that make the ML ops part of the equation and the deployment part a lot more equitable. When you talk about the relationship between kind of the higher level tools and, and programming languages that data scientists or developer might want to use and the lower level hardware, it calls to mind comparisons to things like CUDA. Is that, you know, how should we think about the what you're offering with SDKs relative to what someone might be familiar with in the GPU world? Yeah, so don't really want to do a bake-off, but I think the analogy runs like this. You could think of CUDA, and CUDA is a lot of things, right? It's a parallel programming language, it's a so on. Uh, but you could think about our Qualcomm AI Engine Direct as being sort of Qualcomm's answer to CUDA in that it provides a common way for practitioners to either use existing runtimes, right, to deploy their solutions, or if they're advanced, and that's what they're application demands, they can sort of program directly. So the analogy is NVIDIA provides CUDNN, which sits on top of CUDA, right? That's an example of a library. Mm -hmm. Our stack provides very similar kinds of capabilities. If you want to roll up your sleeves and you want to write a CUDA kernel for the GPU, of course, there's a way to do that. The analogy is if you want to write a custom application or a custom 
operation or layer for the Qualcomm AI stack. We provide a way to plug that into the Qualcomm AI Engine Direct. We have an API for that. We provide a debugger. We provide a compiler and tools for Hexagon. We provide the same for our mobile GPU. So it's a very analogous offering. And then one thing which a lot of people like are these visual consoles that NVIDIA provides that sit on top of their GPUs. We have offered that for like our gaming customers for a long time. We are expanding that kind of offering to the AI portfolio and really to provide debuggability of Snapdragon as a whole. So you will see us working to integrate our debug tools, not just in the AI space, and there'll be AI specific tooling, but more generally as Snapdragon as a development platform, you will see us kind of expand that offering. So to sort of maybe put a bow on it, I think at the library level and at the sort of yeah. programming and lower levels, we have a you know one-for-one -one corresponding kind of offering to NVIDIA. And then you will see us kind of put the top of the story onto that offering in the next period. Got it, got it. Over the years, we've talked a lot about the ecosystem and the way your tools support and the way you work with other ecosystem partners. You've already mentioned things like Onyx and PyTorch TensorFlow. Can you give us an update on where the ecosystem priorities are and any new, new and exciting updates? So yeah, I can maybe tease a little bit without getting into too many details. So, you know, the way I think about it is this, we continue, and I think the Qualcomm Edge and Direct is a, is a good concrete example of where we are trying to provide, you know, an abstraction of uh, API surface onto which, you know, all these runtimes can plug in, right? So we want maximum access to our silicon and our software. We don't just leave it to them. We've invested working with Google on TensorFlow delegates are working with Microsoft on Onyx runtime. So these are ways in which we're partnering with the broader ecosystem. Some of the work we do, some of the work they do, and we share the work. The, an exciting thing to think about is the cloud to edge story, okay? And so the, the idea that you could have like a Snapdragon Windows compute device and maybe also an XR device that run very similar applications or share an experience, right? These kinds of multi-device experiences are, I think, only really possible when you've got this common abstraction that we're building and you've got like common runtime. So that's why it's so important for us to work with like the Microsofts of the world and the Googles of the world so that if you're... Adobe or something, and you're building Photoshop, and you want a Photoshop experience on an Android device, and you want a Photoshop experience on a Snapdragon ARM-powered PC device, mm -hmm. you don't have to write completely different pieces of software, right? Because underneath it, the silicon is Qualcomm silicon, right? Yeah. And so we want to kind of make that easier. So that's an example of the kind of thing we have in mind. And we're partnering with the operating system providers, if you will, the main drivers of the broader ecosystem, but also like these ISVs. So as our portfolio of use cases expands, then the partners aren't just our traditional handset OEMs, it becomes Microsoft, Adobe, you know, these other kind of companies that have really compelling applications that they can bring to an assortment of Qualcomm devices. So that's kind of where I think we will see our ecosystem efforts expand. Got it. We've touched on throughout the conversation, some of the work happening in automotive as kind of this touchstone for a 
set of use cases that are kind of pushing the the edge. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in automotive nowadays and kind of what's new and interesting in that world? Yeah, so new and interesting is automated cars are are coming but they're not here yet, right? So <laughs> so you know we we have moved from connectivity which is our traditional business so this is like your car is connected to the internet so that you can get emergency services and stuff to digital cockpit so think about in cabin and so we have very strong offerings there and we talked a little bit about like gaze detection yeah. cameras inside the cockpit that are monitoring the driver as part of a safety protocol ADAS we recently won a, a bid with with BMW for example to provide BMW ADAS solutions ADAS is driver assistance yeah, automated driver assistance system, I think. You think I would mm -hmm. exactly know that. But think about this is semi-autonomous, safety-oriented system. This is very advanced lane departure warning, lane keeping, automatic parking, backup. I mean, everything. Everything related to making the automobile a safer and more automated experience, right? And we're on this sort of trajectory towards sort of full automation. But before we get there, there's a lot of problems to solve. So mm -hmm. we want the car to be surrounded by cameras. So we're talking 10 cameras, 15 cameras, right? Oh, wow. Completely surrounding. We're talking about immersive in-cabin experiences. So displays, per-seat displays, per-seat audio experiences. Hmm. We think, oh, well, a car doesn't have to have NLP, but you could talk to your car. It could talk back to you, right? Yeah. I mean, there's just layers and layers and layers of AI in an automated vehicle, both for the comfort of the passengers and the safety of the passengers. And so we're looking at all of those kinds of problems. And the most challenging ones are safety-critical, time-critical kinds of problems. So viewing the car in the context of all the other cars on the road very precise lane positioning for lane keeping and so on. The things like drive policy, like I want to tell the car, I want to go from here to there and I want to know, it needs to know where I'm going, but it needs to be aware of other cars making lane changes. It needs to plan lane changes. It needs to do that in a safe and predictable manner, right? These are all very intensive, basically computer vision, AI powered computer vision problems mm -hmm. that have to be completely seamless to the driver and are very demanding from a predictability point of view. You cannot be like, oh, I'm late with that frame. Like that is could be a problem. And <laughs> yeah, you have yeah. to, of course, design all that software in a safety critical kind of way. So that's really the challenge. And to come sort of full circle on the discussion, there's a lot of compute power that our platform brings to the automobile, but it's proportional to the demand of the workload. So the challenges that we see in XR, we see sort of analogous challenges in a vehicle because the number of cameras is higher or the resolution is higher or the modalities are different, like a mix of LIDAR and radar and camera all working together to solve a problem. This introduces multimodal kinds of challenges. So there's a lot of very exciting challenges. And I think I know you will see Qualcomm continue to make strides in the automotive market. It's a very important market for us. Again, we do fundamental research there that drives our innovation. And it's a similar kind of cycle that we talked about with Qualcomm AI Research. We do fundamental research in these automotive networks and that drives our product line. Mm -hmm. Do you take a strong position on vision first type of automotive experience or do you 
also support and work with kind of these other sensors and kind of a sensor fusion type of environment? Yeah. So we, we're very agnostic. We do what our customers want, right? Mm -hmm. So we're looking, like I said, at the three primary modalities, camera, which I think is sort of camera first in a lot of ways, I think for pretty much for everybody, and then radar and LIDAR. So we look at sort of all, I'll call it the three major modalities yeah. for sensors. Awesome. Any final thoughts as we close out? What do you think we'll be talking about next year when we get together? <laughs> well, I hope, I hope, you know, thinking about your sort of practitioner audience, I hope, let's put it this way, I am planning that we will be able to talk and a lot more concretely about, let's say, the tools that we talked about, right? These sort of visually oriented tools. Mm -hmm. We hope to be able to show them publicly by then. That's our plan. And I would like to talk a lot more about automotive, probably. We will be another year into that evolution and hopefully, of course, talk about a few more customers concretely, but we expect to you know, win more business and make more advances there. I say that because I feel like it's perhaps one of the most compelling and demanding markets for AI, mm -hmm. generally speaking, right? I think you can't build one of these safe vehicles without AI. I don't think there'd be a lot of debate about that statement. And I really hope we will be able to showcase more of these multi-device use cases, right? We're working pretty hard on that. And I think we will see in the next year, the fruits of that yeah. come to bear, like in a real kind of context that I can talk about publicly, but just know that a lot of work in that direction. And we're excited about Windows on Snapdragon and putting that power of an all-day device in people's hands that can also do AI, right? Right. Because we take for granted background blur and these other things, but they can be even better with AI, right? And they can be done in a way that mm -hmm. does not compromise battery life and, you know, makes the, the experience that we all live with every day a lot more seamless. So I hope that these are a forecast of some of the things we'll talk about that will be more publicly announced in the next period. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jeff, it's always a pleasure to uh, reconnect with you. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. And you have a good rest of your day. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.